Okay, welcome everyone. Today is uh, Friday, May the 8th, and this is the uh, second to the last tea time Q&A session that I'll be doing. So, hmm. last night Ajahn Sona gave a talk on the third of the fourth, third of the four uh, Satipatthana sections, Mindfulness of the Mind and introduce that uh, topic to us. And we have uh, quite a few people that sent in some questions. Uh, so we'll be uh, going through that. Given that Dodger only has a couple more talks, I suspect uh, that might be the only talk he's giving on this section, but you never know. I was wrong uh, thinking that about uh, the second section on Vedana, our feeling. So. We shall see. Uh, so to start off, there was a question that came um, several days ago uh, from Sarah about worldly and non-worldly uh, thoughts. And my interpretation of your, your question, Sarah, was that you were relating to some of the phrasing that's there in the section on Vedna. Uh, is that correct? Yep. Yeah. I think I meant feelings. Feelings, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, there's not that, that other exact, that phrase doesn't come up in relationship to uh, the mind section. So, and it's, uh, you know, at the time, it seemed familiar, but uh, it's not a way that I often classify uh, mindfulness in the way I practice. So when I, but I knew it did have a technical definition to it. So I talked with one of the monks here and consulted a couple of references, and uh, I wasn't surprised at why I had forgotten it. Um, there seems to be a little, what I would say is little useful distinction there. It's more like a further refinement. And we get this in the sutta sometimes, like these extra ways that they try to break down and refine things around uh, Vedana. So to review, we have the three types of Vedana, pleasant, painful, and neither pleasant nor painful. And then worldly and non-worldly just describes uh, subcategories. So there's, there's like a, a matrix that breaks out from this where you have painful, neither painful nor pleasant feelings and pleasant feelings of a worldly type and of a non-worldly type. And most of the references that seems to be pointing to are whether or not they are connected with uh, the household life, as they say in the suttas. So the life of a non-monastic or an ordinary householder or the monastic life. You could maybe extrapolate that to painful and pleasant feelings based on worldly things and then unworldly would be uh, based on renunciation or the cultivation of the path so i don't i don't know that it's a distinction that brings a lot of meaning to to most practitioners um, either something's painful neutral or pleasant <laughs> and uh so anyways that's 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 i chase that sort of down for people that are interested in the details, um, there's a Bhikkhu Bodhi suggests looking at 
Sutta number 137 in the Majjhima Nikaya uh, for a further breakdown of that. And in the, moder- in the modern vernacular, we would say it gets pretty nerdy. Uh, that, that Sutta in particular is focused on the six sense bases. And so a lot of the contemplations in there are modeling our experience or analyzing our experience based on the various six sense bases. And the part that starts to talk to this dimension uh, starts off, the 36 positions of beings should be understood. And so what was it said? And in what reference was it said? There are six kinds of joy based on the household life and six kinds of joy based on renunciation. Six types of grief based on the household life and six kinds of griefs based on renunciation. Six kinds of equanimity based on the household life, six kinds of equanimity based on renunciation. And uh, I won't, it goes on to further expound upon that, but in short, it's uh, pain and pleasure sort of connected with the path. So, you know, one might have pleasure based on uh, sense contact of some sort or gain in the world of some sort, or we might have pleasure on the experience of impermanence and selflessness based on meditative experience. So one could be frustrated um, by their spiritual practice, and also they can experience pain and frustration at the loss of uh, sense, sense objects. So anyways, just a bit of house cleaning, I guess we could say to wrap up that question for people that are uh, curious about that. And also we've been chanting Ajahn Sona's summary of the Satipatthana in our evening chanting sessions. And that, that comes up in there. So other people might be interested in that both now and also listening to this later on YouTube. So let's move on. Uh, uh, Mariam, you have a question. Would you like to ask that? Yes, thank you, Ajahn. Um, I wanted to see if you can help in um, figuring out on a daily basis how one can be experiencing feeling as feeling and just let them be. Um, In meditation, I have developed some tools for myself that I can actually not get frustrated, not get angry, not get upset when I hear voices or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I feel like there are times that we have control over things because it's our own. Whoops. You just cut out there, Mariam. Mariam, are you still with us? Okay. Then that's where. Uh, Wario, are you still with us? So, just. Okay, well, I apologize. I can neither mute her or. 
remove her, but I think she's she's gonna call back in now. Um, let's move to Joan from Bend. Joan, you had a question. Yes, Rajan, thank you. Um, I was curious when Ajahn Sona last night in his talk mentioned that, it was sort of towards the end, that um, this third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of mind, uh, should not be separated out uh, from the others and used as a meditation technique just as it, itself, like you might do with some of the body practices or, um, and I just would like to, I'm just curious about that. And because I have seen retreats offered on mindfulness of mind, not uh, at the monastery, but, you know, at a retreat center. Huh. And um, I haven't gone to one, but and I just like to know uh, if you know anything about that. Hmm. You know, did the you remember the Buddha teaching something like that, or um, teaching that it shouldn't be broken out? Yeah, or that there was a, there's a reason for that. Well, I don't, I don't think that there's any greater reason than uh, it being confused as having the same benefits of practicing something within the context of the practice. I can't comment on any particular retreat and what's actually being taught there. I've never seen, uh, I don't have any awareness of people teaching retreats just on mindfulness of the mind. And um, even if they are like how well it would correlate with what's, what is there in the Satipatthana Sutta. But, you know, listening to Ajahn's talk last night, he doesn't, he, he kind of just glances over this really quickly. But, I think his attitude is he has that attitude towards uh, many of the elements there um, that they can be easily um, misused. Um, maybe not necessarily like to create great harm or something, but they can be, um, they can lead to confusion and they can be misused or just used in ways that aren't producing the results that um, practicing something integrated in the path is designed to sort of produce. And when he mentioned this last night, um, very quickly after that, he, he follow, follows on and says, he kind of gives a hint that this exercise of analyzing uh, whether the mind has these states or is absent of these states um, really absent the fourth of the satipatthanas like dhamma categories doesn't really have the the context to produce the kind of benefits that we want in the practice so you know and he i mean i'm sure he's going to be going into this but the fourth of these really is the section of the satipatthana sutta that really tells you in greater detail what it is that we're trying to do here. Uh, if you think back to his analogy, of, I believe it was a, a journey or a car or something like you, you need to, you need to have the destination of mind or the purpose in mind. And this uh, fourth category, a uh, fourth section of the Satipatthana Dhamma categories 
is one that kind of contextualizes and gives meaning to the whole rest of it and situates it more strongly within the eight path. So, and I, I heard just a little reference there. He said something like, it should not be extracted um, from the four foundations. And if it's not used with Dhamma categories, then it's not necessarily fulfilling the, the purpose that it has. So, um, you know, in, in particular, and I'm, I think Ajahn will probably go into this, it's then absent sort of its, its role of starting to discern sort of what's going on with the defilements and the hindrances and something I've heard Ajahn on other occasions emphasize when talking about the Satipatthana is he feels that this is the, the clear instructions that are coming out of the Satipatthana is like, this is for the overcoming of the hindrances and the cultivation of the seven factors of awakening. So it's not, it's not very useful um, in context of the path. If one is just merely noting anger's present, anger's absent, uh, or the other sort of afflictive states of mind. And many of them are very clear defilements that one as a practitioner wants to be looking out for is lust present or absent. Sometimes translated as greed. Is anger present or absent? Is the mind deluded or not? Is the mind distracted or not? So, and those, those four in particular are of high relevance for one engaged in cultivating meditation. And if you think about the, the larger context of samasati in the more global effort of cultivating the mind, we have right effort, which is supporting the engaging of practice in samasati, which culminates in the development of samasamadhi. Like these three elements of the Eightfold Path uh, make up practice, make up mental cultivation part of the uh, the Eightfold Path. So I think that's kind of the point that he's he's hinting at, but let's see. Okay. Did Mariam come back? No, <laughs> not yet. So we will move on. Is there any other questions or comments from people in the Zoom room, the Pacific Hermitage Retreatants? Ah, we do have Mariam. Okay, Mariam, go ahead. We might have to start over with you. We lost most of your audio. Hmm? And now we lost her again completely. Oh, no, oh, there she is. Okay. Yeah. Can you hear me now, Ajahn? Okay. So I'll get to the question without any further delay. I basically um, wanted to know as a lay person, how can I practice feeling as feelings? Like the way Ajahn Chah was saying that if someone throws you a cold, if you catch it, you get burned. But if you don't catch it, you, you're fine. Mm -hmm. So how does one keep practicing? Okay. Uh, your audio cut out, so I'll just I'll just go because ahead and respond to that much. 
I've lost you, I guess. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I think I got the essence of the question and I'll, I'll try to respond. So how do you, how do you practice? How do you practice with this? Um, let me read the question that you submitted to just to help contextualize this. Hi, Ajahn. How can a lay, as a lay person, one practice feelings as feelings and not add the second arrow? As you know, when people are involved, everything goes out the door. How can I cultivate this? With all of my gratitude and appreciation for all that you do. So, you know, I, although there are differences between uh, the monastic life and lay life, I, I wouldn't make too much of those distinctions. Um, for a serious practitioner, um, you know, if you're going to engage in the practice, you're going to engage in the practice and uh, you make best use of the conditions that you have to practice. Uh, and, you know, both Ajahn Cha and one of my first teachers uh, in Thailand, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, um, really put a lot of strong emphasis on breaking down that sort of uh, categorization of, you know, there being monastic practices, or lay practices. Either one wants to engage fully with the Dhamma or they don't. And um, and then you just do the best according to your life situation. And, you know, in terms of practicing letting feelings, like as you put it here, so practice letting feelings be feelings, you know, in the context of this second arrow, um, take time to formally practice this skill of being able to establish mindfulness uh, on an aspect of consciousness like um, the body or the breath as we've talked about before with a determination and an eye to be wholly sensitive to how that feeling affect of positive negative neutral is coupled with sense contact and just like how pervasive it is how subtle it can be how ever-changing and ephemeral it is, uh, how it's just a natural occurrence with sense contact. It's the way uh, our experience of sense consciousness is colored. Uh, and then reflecting on this kind of teaching of the second arrow, uh, one practices non non-reactivity towards that. One practices not adding extra uh, dukkha, compounded dukkha, as I like to say, on that. And doing that sort of formally, I think, teaches us a lot. And we learn those lessons in the in the in a mental environment and with the with whole like conditions of the mind being such that they can sufficiently make an impression upon us about the value of this. Uh, and in time, they begin to sort of transform one's relationship to Vedana, to feeling affect. And then one carries that forward into their life. Some of it will happen automatically. Like if you're changed, you're changed and it affects your whole life. Uh, some of it, though, can be deepened and hastened by not forgetting that, like being mindful of of this Dhamma, being mindful of the contemplation of 
Vedana as you move through your day. I think of it oftentimes being sensitive to it or sensitive to that dimension of experience. And then as you, as you move through your day, maybe not in an unbroken meditative sort of sense, uh, but part of a more global awareness that you're able to maintain at some level in many situations of your life, you turn back to that way of framing your experience and viewing your experience with an eye towards reducing dukkha, with an eye of choosing not to compound um, the suffering that arises. Um, and in particular, one of the, the, the heart of these, the insight in, into sort of Vedna is, uh, is not to compound suffering. Let, let pain just be pain. And whether it's a painful sight, a painful idea, a painful word, painful bodily sensation, um, see if you can just let it be in its most natural form without any adverse reaction to it. Uh, and I always have to say, like, this isn't to counsel apathy. I mean, you know, if the body's in pain and there's something you can do to... Um, something sensible you can do to alleviate that pain then by all means do it but you don't inflict yourself with a second arrow of some form of emotional grief or frustration or stress or uh, negative ideation uh, and you know our more global effort in practice is to be a student of dukkha and um, as we move through our day, whether it's formal practice or just the rest of our life, um, one should return again and again and remember um, to be a student of dukkha. We're interested in how it is that we create suffering and how it is that we can alleviate suffering. And part of it is reminding ourselves <laughs> to make wise choices and respond in wise ways to what it is that life throws at us. So, and uh, I think the contemplation of Aiden in particular, and also this image of the second arrow is really useful in that aspect. And I don't, over the years, just talking with people, many people get this right away. And that image is, is really, take that, that image, it's such a vivid one that it makes it memorable and sticky. And one can remember that sort of again and again as one moves through their life. Hopefully you'll never forget it. And if you find yourself compounding suffering and afflicting yourself with a second arrow, um, you know what to do. Uh, stop that. So. Okay. Thank you, Ajahn. Okay. I'm glad we made it through. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Next, we'll go to a question from Charles in Portland. Charles, you want to ask your question? Sure. Thank you very much. Hmm. Uh, could you please say more about uh, how to go about utilizing uh, what you've termed the binary practice of mindfulness of mind, a term I like a lot. I find it very helpful within the context of practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. 
you know, while, while recognizing greed and hatred to a certain extent is pretty accessible for me, I'm a little less clear about how to reflect on some of the other conditions of mind, such as surpassing, collected, developed, etc. Okay. Um, well, first off, yeah, this is my, this was my impromptu way of summarizing what Ajahn was describing the other night. And um, the usefulness of, of just sorting something out, skillful from unskillful, or in this practice of mindfulness of the mind, just determining if a few various states of mind are present or absent, and establishing mindfulness around that. So to review, like that's, is the mind greedy or not, angry or not? deluded or not, distracted or not. Um, and those are the ones that are of primary interest uh, to us as practitioners and meditators. There's a few other others included in there which are really referring to very high states of mind. Um, so for maybe a long time, maybe even the rest of your life, it'd be uh, is the mind great or not? Is the mind uh, unsurpassable? No. Is the mind concentrated? Hopefully, but a lot of the time it's not. And is the mind liberated? So you have eight states that come in that section, and four of them are something that uh, everyone who's not yet an arahant experiences quite a lot. Greed, anger, delusion, and distraction. And they're of chief importance to a meditator and one somebody intent on cultivating meditation. And it's important to start to discern whether they're, they're present in the mind or absent in the mind. And the, the, just, just that alone is something that is very practicable, something's very doable, and it sidesteps a lot of the other ways that we might get stuck contemplating the contents of our mind. You know, typically we start trying to assess what's going on with greed in the mind. So like doubt can arise, like identification can arise. You know, it's like, oh, here I go again. I'm such a greedy person. Some uh, unuseful uh, discourse based on um, our thought habits and delusion uh, take us into a place that isn't very useful and not in service of the practice. And the point here is to start to discern whether these states are, are present or not. And there's a strong overlapping of those four states of greed, anger, delusion, and distraction with the five hindrances, which are very integral in the, in the model of how, how one cultivates effective meditation practice. As for the higher states, uh, it's kind of beyond the scope of our Q and A session here, and in some ways, it's a little bit academic. Uh, but like the mind being great, uh, this this word comes up in a few different places. The one that is maybe most familiar to you and some of the others here uh, in our session today is in the uh, cultivation of the Brahma Viharas. Like we one of the chants that we do is a meditation on loving kindness, compassion, gladness, and equanimity. 
And in the very wording of that, uh, I will abide pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving kindness, likewise a second, a third, a fourth, above, below, around, everywhere. Like the description of that is generating that, sending it forth in all the directions. And then like towards the end of that refrain, it's describing that being exalted, immeasurable, and great, like an expansive sense of that. And that gives you something of a sense of what the great mind is. Uh, the unsurpassable mind is um, taken by scholars to be referring to either full awakening or a very profound state of um, samadhi, very profound state of absorption. Uh, concentrated is one that's a little more accessible to us, especially as we practice and we develop, start developing the ability to uh, achieve samadhi, then one can know whether or not the mind is in the neighborhood of that or in, in um, a concentrated state or not. Um, and then liberated is full awakening. So, you know, we have four kind of lower ones where you should probably be doing most of your work. Um, although making the mind great and making the mind concentrated are pretty accessible for people that put forth effort. And it's it's good to know that. It's good to uh, reflect on the, the presence and, and the absence of that, especially once one starts to get a little taste of that. Because just even if the mind is not great, even if the mind is not concentrated, reflecting that it's not, you, you evoke a memory of how positive and good it feels to be in the experiencing that. And that might motivate you to make some different choices to get back there. I got it. I got it. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. And especially with respect to the lower four, it's, it's almost like you can uh, use that, that tool almost like as a place to pivot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of teachers, you know, I might add, a lot of teachers really encourage developing a kind of connected level of mindfulness and awareness uh, around those lower four as you move through the day. You know, if you, like I had several teachers that said, you know, if you just wait till the, till it's time to sit down to meditate, to remind yourself of the um, the presence of the hindrances and the effect they're having on your mind, it's its too late almost. Like you, you've given them free reign for how many hours of the day? And then you sit down and you expect them to go away. Uh, and so, you know, creating creating a habit of looking at the mind, like remembering to to look at the mind for the presence or absence of these becomes very important. And, uh, in a more connected and thorough development of, of the mind of a meditator. Throughout the course of one's days. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Okay. That was a good question. Time here. Anyone else in the room? Question that they didn't submit?
Okay, I'll move on. Next question we have is from Deborah from Tucson in the USA. Dear Ajans, thank you so much for your caring and sharing of the Dhamma. If you are deluded, doesn't that preclude you from knowing you're deluded? What is the clue or indication that you're deluded? Thank you for answering. Well, Deborah, yeah, this that is the trickiest of the states to know. And I, I think, I can't remember exactly when, but Ajahn has referred to that even in the last couple talks that he gave here. And um, we can know uh, directly, and it's fairly obvious if we're angry, if anger is present in the mind. Um, it's also not all that difficult to sort of uh, notice that uh, a greed uh, or has uh, arisen in the mind, but delusion is is very difficult because you are deluded. <laughs> um, you're not seeing clearly, and it's hard to see that you're not seeing clearly. So, how is it that you know you're deluded? Uh, one is through uh, various states that come up, and one recognizing those. Like if you're in doubt, you're stuck in a skeptical doubt about what it is you should be doing or about the teachings or about the practice in particular, um, that is classified as a state of delusion. Uh, but there's an, there's an element of delusion that's working anytime that the hindrances are present. Um, it is part of the essential nutriment. So by failing to see uh, the characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness. Um, and our experience not being informed about the relevance of those truths, of the three characteristics, you're creating fertile ground for the hindrances to uh, arise in the mind. So it's like delusion is, is working in that way. Um, so if you see the presence of the hindrances there, um, you know that delusion is is operating. Uh, and another way is is dukkha. Um, there's always some delusory condition there that's supporting the uh, experience of of dukkha. And so as long as as long as there's hindrances, as long as there's dukkha, those are the symptoms that tell you that you're deluded. And um, that's the condition that most of us are in for most of our life uh so and the the proper sort of response to that is to uh, turn to strengthening the practice putting forth right effort uh, cultivating skillful conditions of mind so hard to know directly but you certainly know the symptoms Okay, the next name here, I cannot pronounce, X-O-L-A, and then I'm not even going to try with the last name, but let's, I'm going to guess Zola, um, and forgive me if I've pronounced your name wrong, from Johannesburg, South Africa. Thank you for all the teaching. Question, I listened to Ajahn Sona speak about the ability to be detached from body pain and not from mental pain. 
I'm looking to please get advice on a strategy to move out of a mental pain. My persistent mental pain is lazy sloth depression in the mornings when trying to wake up. I can recognize I'm in the state. I can observe my thoughts in this state, but I don't have a clear strategy to get out of mental state slash pain. So, Zola, that's, um, that's a pretty common one. People sort of getting up in the morning, especially. So I hope you're not being too hard on yourself here. Um, it's interesting you, you describe it as mental pain. So if I'm missing how maybe that this is more profound, uh, please forgive me. Like, you know, if you're experiencing moderate or profound depression in the morning, it's not just uh, laziness or a, a lack of energy to uh, get up and uh, start applying yourself to the things you need to do or applying yourself to your practice. Um, but, you know, the short, the short answer here is like, you, 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 you don't want to be detached from that. What you want to do is put forth right effort and uh, resolve those states. Um, those are hindrances of the mind. And I would say the most important thing is to uh, make some commitments and, and find some ways that you can uh, engage in putting forth energy. And uh, if this is especially a problem uh, when waking up in the morning, uh, come up with some strategies before you go to sleep about how it is that you can step-by-step step, start building energy from the moment you get up in the morning. So um, I know for years, I really struggled with morning meditation being a very effective uh, time for my, my meditation. I always found later in the day and early evening to be a much better time, but I lived most of my life in training monasteries where there's a pretty strict regimen of meditation in the morning at 3.30 a.m. or sometimes a little later, like 4.30 or even as late as 5. And um, I would do all, all sorts of things in an effort to try to get myself going. Living at a Baiguri was very good because we live uh, at a fairly high elevation above where the meditation hall was in the forest and it's a good 15-minute walk, at least, on a narrow dirt path on a very steep hill in the dark with a flashlight to get down to the meditation hall um, in the uh, pre-dawn uh, pre light. So, but even so that would only arouse a certain amount of energy. So, you know, I try to get up and maybe do some exercise right away, splash some water in my face, um, walk briskly down the hill, breathe strongly. Um, so, you know, it's not all about just trying to change the mind. There's an intimate relationship between the mind and body. And I would, I would get some strategies to do things that arouse energy, light, 
turn on some light, take a shower, do some some mindful movement, do some exercise, um, do some breathing exercises, like even like pranayama yoga or some strong full breathing just to start to wake up the, the mind and body and arouse some energy uh, or do chanting in the morning. So uh, at Abhayagiri, we had a rigorous schedule of doing chanting before we began our morning meditation. And in, in an effort to sort of arouse energy in the mind, I would do the chanting in a way that would try to support the, the um, cultivation of extra energy, knowing that habitually the mind would slide into this um, slothful, dull, um, lazy kind of position of the hindrances in the meditation. So, you know, I tried to do the chanting in, a, in an energetic and vigorous way, really kind of breathing and tuning into the vibration of the chant and, and even to a certain extent trying to reflect on um, the puja, the devotional aspect, as well as some of the teachings in there to, to stimulate energy in the mind before then going into meditation. And, you know, the cultivation of energy, it's like you, you really just, it's funny, like you don't, you don't need to start off big. You just, it's, you gradually work your way into it. Energy begets energy. So if you're lacking energy or you're lacking motivation, a very useful skill is just to find some very small step to put forth energy in the right direction. Um, if you're sitting around unmotivated and you need to sort of clean the house and you're, you're being paralyzed by the fact that you're feeling really lazy and dull and cleaning the house seems like a too big of a task, then just get up and do one thing. Just tidy up the books and the magazines on the coffee table or something, or just get up and um, tidy the room or something, or sweep the floor. And it's interesting, like, you don't, you don't want to overthink it. You just want to sort of engage. And there is this curious phenomenon where energy begets energy. So just put forth a little bit of energy and, um, and then see if that helps shift things in the mind and then try to build on that by putting forth a little more energy. And you need to just kind of get the ball rolling. So, so I hope that helps. Uh, the next question is from Sherry in Terrace, Canada. Good morning. Last night's Dhamma talk from Ajahn Sona reminded us that we should not be a mirror to the world and that we should abide independent in the world not clinging to anything in the world. I like to support environmental and indigenous causes that to me represent the very basis of life on earth. Can you speak to this? Is it a conflict? Thank you kindly. So, well, Sherry, I think what you're, the part of the talk that you're referring to, Ajahn in particular was trying to make the point that uh, 
you shouldn't you shouldn't let the world tell you how you should feel. Um, you know, there's a lot of misinformed opinions out there in the world about how you should feel, and not a whole lot of people um, have the kind of wisdom that, that Ajahn Sonar or the Buddha has um, in the appropriate way to emote about things. Um, the world will tell you you should be angry about this, you should be sad about that, you should be depressed about this, you should be desirous about that. Um, and those don't lead to your deeper well-being and happiness. Um, and, uh, you know, if you, you, you know, you, you kind of bring up various good causes here, like, uh, environmental and indigenous causes. And there are voices out there that tell you, you should be angry about the environment and angry about how indigenous people have been treated. And I know from listening to Ajahn Sona, he says, that's like, uh, trying to fuel your activism with dirty fuel. So, and um, you don't need anger. Yes, it is energizing, um, but there's a much cleaner way to sort of uh, feel and feel yourself. And you can you can be just as effective, if not more, um, by responding out of kindness and compassion and care and concern, as opposed to anger, sadness, indignation. So I don't really see a conflict here. Um, it just it depends who you want to uh, be your guide and, and ultimately try it out for yourself. See if you can uh, put aside um, those types of unskillful uh, emotions as a motivator and as a maybe set reaction to these things and see if instead you can uh, replace those with kindness, passion, concern, care, sense of stewardship, sense of generosity. Um, next question is from Nassim in Victoria, Canada. Uh, Dear Ajahn Sudanto, thank you for your kind and considered responses to the questions that come in for the Q&A sessions. Thank you also for the beautiful chanting every morning and evening. My question today is to do with the three stains of anger, greed, and delusion and how to deal with them. If I understood him clearly, Ajahn Sona last night said that mindfulness of the mind should not be separated and used as a meditation technique. So what to do if I notice anger during meditation or one of the other stains. I am so often aware of my hindrances during meditation, but then don't know what to do about that. I would very much appreciate your guidance on this. So, this is similar to discussion we had just prior here, Nassim, but, uh, and I, I am guessing that Ajahn is gonna go into this tonight or tomorrow, so I won't give this much time the, in, in the general sense, I mean, we put forth right effort and that's how we, we work to deal with those states, uh, trying to overcome the hindrances. You might look to the teaching of the removal of distracting thoughts. Um, that's something that elaborates a little bit of framework for dealing with uh, these afflictive states of mind. 
Uh, in short, you want to replace an unskillful state of mind with a skillful state of mind. Uh, if you can't do that, then maybe reflect on the 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 danger, the ugliness, the uh, unbeautiful aspects of harboring these kinds of mental states, and that might help dissipate some of the energy so that you can then um, arouse some positive state of mind in its place. Um, you know, sometimes just applying yourself to loving kindness or breath meditation uh, can be helpful. Sometimes listening to an Ajahn Sona talk or reading a, reading a, an inspiring passage from the suttas or another teacher can help um, shift, shift us out of those states. But if you're talking about those things in particular coming up sort of in, in meditation, then uh, try to come back to the object of your meditation, your main strategy for developing your meditation, and just try to replace that uh, experience of the negative with an experience of a skillful and positive state. And it can be as simple as coming back to the breath. It could be as simple as mm, withdrawing attention from that. Like, you know, you maybe you're you're meditating and you're noticing some sort of agitation or frustration come up. Sometimes you can just not feed that, not give that too much attention and shift awareness back into your meditation object and it just dissipates on its own. So, so there's a few suggestions there. Uh, let's see. This is the last question from Lacey in Tacoma. Hi again, I just wanted to reach out and say thank you. This retreat has given me the structure and support I needed to reinvigorate my practice. As a result of partaking in this retreat, I feel like I'm part of something meaningful and wholesome and that I'm not alone. I feel a happy connection with all the other participants and a sense of loving solidarity, even though I have not met them. I only wish this retreat could extend for the rest of the quarantine time. That would be a lot of work for a few of us, but that's a beautiful wish. Might you continue to live stream morning puja and evening chanting? Thank you so much for providing this beautiful experience to all of us. So, um, well, Lacey, uh, if the other monks are okay with that here, and we've been trying to work out our streaming system here, especially for the morning and evening uh, meditations and chanting, um, that probably something we'll continue on doing, especially during this time where uh, people are stuck at home or asked to practice a pretty profound form of social distancing. And people can't come and visit the monastery or go to retreat centers. So um, qualified, yes. Um, we don't live in a total tyranny here, so I can't just um, declare that we're going to do this forevermore, but um, the monks are pretty congenial and understand that this has been a, a benefit to people. So, mm. so that's the last of the submitted questions, and we have just a couple more minutes. Uh, if there's any other 
uh, sharings or reflections from people in the room. And if not, we can go ahead and close for the day. Uh, let's see, Shelly, go ahead. Yes, thank you, uh, John. <laughs> I'm a hakra, I'm a mamkra. What about me? My making, my making. Huh. Uh, when you uh, skipped my question from earlier on, what came up for me was, oh, it wasn't a, pr a profound enough question. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's that could be true. It's all uncertain. Um, it's just actually, I, I think I'm just experiencing, it was nice that that last person, you know, mentioned, you know, reaching, the reaching out for everybody, but I'm feeling kind of isolated. And uh, so I'm thinking, you know, talking to myself and, and having the uh, chance reverberate in my head all day is, it's probably something I should look at, but uh, at the same time, I am experiencing a wee bit of suffering here in this isolation. As you know, I'm kind of an extrovert and uh, I'm, I'm looking at it, but I'm just expressing some angst. Thank you. Hmm. Well, keep focused on the silver linings and, and keep finding sort of skillful ways to try to work with the conditions that we have here, um, whether we're introverts or extroverts or whatnot um you know it's a great opportunity to get to know yourself um so many of us would not be having this experience <laughs> most people wouldn't choose to uh, narrow their activities and contact with people um, as radically as they have uh, in this last what is it six weeks going on two months maybe in some places um and this too shall end um, probably fairly soon, there'll be a, a, a loosening of uh, the need to be so isolated and make the most of it. Um, learn how you can sort of uh, adapt and cope. And I think it, the mind of a practitioner is to learn as much as they can about themselves and develop as much skillfulness so that they don't find themselves suffering in, in any circumstance. Uh, that's part of what it means to be free. You like loosen your dependencies uh, so that uh, you need not suffer regardless of the situation. So, and uh, it's good to aspire to learn how to be happy alone. So with silence, solitude, and serenity. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I wouldn't worry about... Um, the chance reverberating in your mind or even talking to yourself. I think those are fairly normal things that many people do. So at least I do them. Oh. Very discursive kind of mind. And I talk to myself a lot. Uh, I don't think I have any, anything that would be classified in the DSM as a pathology or a bona fide mental illness. So, and I've met enough peop other people that have, similar minds. So I feel like I'm in relatively good company. So hang in there. It will change. This too shall pass. Learn what you can from it and make the most. So, all right. Well, that's, that's it for today.
and uh, I was asked to uh, I was asked to make an announcement before we started. It's just now coming to me. Uh, the stewards up at Birkin have taken the audio versions of Ajahn Sona's talks as well as uh, the chanting and set up a new page on the Birkin website just to make it easier for people to access those. They've been available in Ajahn's podcast feed, but uh, some people are having difficulty getting those. So now they're all conveniently in one place. And I believe the it's it's listed under teachings in the menu structure, but also it's such a simple URL. Anyone can go there. It's birkin.ca slash audio. And uh, all the audio versions of the talks that have already occurred are there. Um, I imagine the, the following talks will be posted there as Ajin gives them. And then there's also um, recordings of the chanting. We've been trying to, we, we tried to get uh, some recordings of the chanting out early on, just so that people who didn't have a very a good internet connection or who just preferred to have audio could use that through the duration of the retreat. We'll, we'll probably try to put up some improved versions when the retreat's over. We've been recording some of the uh, morning and evening chanting sessions over this week and have some better ones, but it's going to take some time to do a little post-processing and clean them up. So birkin.ca slash audio if you're interested in that. And uh, just a reminder, get your questions in before 9 a.m. There should be a link in the description here or go to birkin.ca for the retreat page. Uh, tomorrow will be the last of these 4 p.m. tea time Q&A sessions. And then uh, Sunday, so tomorrow, Saturday, Sunday, um, there should be a recorded uh, question and answer session with Ajahn Sona from questions submitted by the Pacific Hermitage Retreatants. So, and uh, the deadline for submitting those has passed. That was at 9 a.m. this morning. But um, I don't know how many they had. You might, if you got one in before evening meditation, maybe they would still consider it. But all right. Thank you. Thank you all for your good questions and your practice. And uh, enjoy the rest of today. And we'll see you tomorrow.